Theodore John Kaczynski was born on May 22, 1942, in Chicago, Illinois, to Wanda and Theodore, whom his friends called Turk. By all accounts, Ted, as his parents called him, was a normal, albeit very bright, child. However, when he was nine months old, he suffered a severe allergic reaction which required hospitalization. Wanda, Ted's mother, reported seeing a change in her son's demeanor after this incident, as he became more withdrawn and began demonstrating separation anxiety. In 1949, his younger brother David was born. It was said that Ted and his brother got along well. Both Wanda and David have described the Kaczynski family as a normal and loving one with no abuse or neglect. Ted, however, would later state his upbringing was abusive, as he felt pressured by his parents to excel academically. And he did. In fifth grade, Ted's intelligence was tested, as he appeared to be intellectually gifted. His IQ score was measured to be 167, far above the 140 typically considered genius level. He was so advanced, he skipped sixth grade. But despite his gifted intellect, Ted struggled socially, and often spent time alone. In 1952, the Kaczynskis moved from Chicago to Evergreen, Illinois, as Wanda and Turk believed this would be a better environment for their two sons. Evergreen was a culturally diverse neighborhood where schools began to be more racially integrated after the landmark decision to desegregate schools was made by the Supreme Court in Brown v. the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas in 1954. In 1955, Evergreen built its first high school called Evergreen Park. It has been said that this new school lacked any sense of community. The school, having a large budget, hired the best teachers, and the curriculum at the high school was quite advanced. Ted, however, thrived in this environment, and as a result, skipped his junior year of high school. While this allowed him to be academically challenged, it contributed to him being further isolated from his peers. He did try to be social, however, as he was involved in several school clubs, he was also an avid reader, collected coins, and played an instrument similar to many other boys his age. At the age of 15, Ted graduated high school and was accepted at Harvard University. When he entered college at just 16 years old, he lived in a dorm for the youngest and most intelligent freshman boys. It was isolated from the rest of the students, and while the aim was to help these young students adjust to the college environment, it actually further isolated them from their peers. Despite this, Ted reportedly described this experience as a positive one. Although his tendency to be a loner remained, he was involved in sports, including swimming, wrestling, and basketball. He continued to play the trombone. He was noted to have made some friends and in many respects was doing well in this environment. In the 1950s, Harvard implemented the general education curriculum, which the students and faculty referred to as Gen Ed. While the theoretical aim of Gen Ed was to teach students ethics from a Judeo-Christian tradition, this was not what occurred in practice. Rather, many of the faculty tasked with teaching Gen Ed were far more oriented to science, and many were disenfranchised with the traditional viewpoints and values after the conclusion of World War II and the bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. The message taught in Gen Ed was positivistic in nature. The emphasis was on science and technology, with faith and religion being portrayed as non-scientific and therefore invalid. Many students received the nihilistic message that science was the future, but that science would also destroy civilization. Life had no greater purpose and society was doomed. The young Ted Kaczynski appeared to be heavily influenced by the Gen Ed curriculum. 
He adopted the view of technology as evil and believed it would destroy humanity if progress was not stopped. While Kaczynski was in college, psychologist Henry A. Murray had just returned to Harvard after serving with the Office of Strategic Services, the precursor to the CIA during World War II. During the war, he was asked to complete a psychological profile of Hitler and to assess incoming applicants. Murray was interested in brainwashing and interrogation techniques. After his return to Harvard, he began a three-year study examining the effects of extreme stress on psychological functioning. In 1959, Kaczynski was recruited to participate in Murray's study. He later described this experience as one of the worst of his life. Kaczynski graduated from Harvard with a bachelor's degree in mathematics in 1962. That same year, he enrolled in graduate school at the University of Michigan, where he earned a master's degree and PhD in mathematics. In 1967, he went to work at the University of California, Berkeley, as an assistant professor where he taught geometry and calculus. He remained there until his abrupt and unexpected resignation in 1969. Two years later, he left society and moved to a remote cabin in the Montana wilderness where he had no electricity or running water. This episode is about the Unabomber, part one. Welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McConnell and Dr. David Morelos. David, I'm pretty excited about this episode. This is such an interesting case to me. But the other reason that I'm excited is that this is the first part of a two part series of episodes about the Unabomber. And we're going to be back with our next episode with part two. So you guys won't have to wait very long to hear the conclusion of this. Well, I think that this case warrants two episodes. I think that we got a lot going on. You're trying to explain a lot. And the evolution of Ted Kaczynski into the Unabomber. Yeah, I mean, there there is just so much about this case. There was no way we could have fit it into one episode. It would have been like three hours long. Yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> so, you know, in this episode, we're focusing on the early years of Ted Kaczynski and some of the experiences that many people believe contributed to his later crimes. You know, in the next episode, we'll be talking about his manifesto, um, the crimes, and his criminal tri- trial and the outcome of that. Yeah. And just a disclaimer, neither David nor I have ever met Kaczynski, so we're really just providing the background and some of the theories of the people that have met with him and evaluated him. 
So David, you know, I think the tendency for us as human beings is really to figure out cause and effect. Would you agree? I would agree. Yes. And, you know, this works well in so many areas of our lives. If my car won't start, I take it to the mechanic so he can figure out what's causing that. Hopefully, right. Right, hopefully, ideally. Then he can fix it and then my car will start again. So, and, you know, we do this kind of predicting or or trying to understand cause and effect all day long. Um, If we didn't have the ability to do this, we probably wouldn't survive very long, right? I would agree. So the problem is that some things in life are so complex, there are so many causes that we can never truly identify what led to what. And I think this is the case with human behavior. Now, I think there might be a psychologist somewhere who would argue that he or she could predict every thought and behavior of an individual if, you know, he knew enough about them. But I think for the most part, psychologists would agree that we can't predict behavior anywhere near 100% of the time. Yeah, predicting behavior is completely it's, off the charts. I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's ridiculously difficult. Yeah. It, we have a much better grasp on understanding behavior after it's occurred. I would agree. And, and, you know, we can use that information. I mean, hopefully we can use that information then going forward to help us predict future behaviors. And I do feel as a field, we are really making advancements in our ability to do this especially like in the area of risk assessment. Um, But we're still, we're nowhere near perfect because humans have free will. Right. And I feel like that's a very transpersonal thing for me to say. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) I'm learning from you. Good, good. It's very hard to account for the decisions that people make and when and why they make them. We can become proficient at identifying patterns of behaviors, but no one adheres to a predicted pattern 100% of the time. I mean, just think about your yourself and, you know, what are the things that you normally do over the course of a week? And are there times that sometimes you deviate from that? I would, I would guess so. Yeah, you have to. So anyway, I guess that's a long-winded way of saying that even if we have some ideas about what may have contributed to Kaczynski's belief system and his subsequent behavior and crimes... We can never say for sure that they caused them. Make sense? Yes. Okay, cool. Absolutely. So, you know, that being said, many people have identified both characteristics within Kaczynski himself and experiences that he had that may have contributed to his later behavior. You know, one of the things that many people have identified is his intellect. So as I mentioned during the intro, Kaczynski's IQ at one point reportedly was measured to be 167. So to put this in perspective, the average IQ is 100. And roughly 16% of the population has an IQ higher than 115. About 2.5% have an IQ higher than 130. And 0.15% have an IQ higher than 145. And 145, we're still not close to where Kaczynski was. So, you know, his IQ of 167, assuming that that was correct, is higher than 0.0015% of people. Wow. So almost nobody, right? I mean, we're at like, there's almost nobody with an IQ higher than that. So while being extremely smart is a gift, what we come back to time and time again on this podcast is that everything has a dark side. 
And being that intelligent likely really contributed to his isolation from other people. It would have been rare, I mean, even at Harvard, to find other people with that same level of intelligence. You know, and then he was also two years younger than most of the other incoming freshmen. And many noted he was like also small for his age. So, you know, you look at all of these factors and I can really see how that could, you know, really create barriers for him in his social life and his ability to kind of connect with his peers. Right. And I also wonder, you know, if you're that smart, if it almost gives you like this kind of arrogance, like I'm one of the smartest people in the world. How could I ever be wrong about anything? Oh, interesting. Yeah. And, and I, I think that would be, a. I think that's a bad thing. I think that we always need to be questioning and taking in, into account other people's viewpoints and information. Well, humble for sure, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we have the intelligence. Then we have this gen ed curriculum. And, you know, as you and I talked about it, it was kind of hard to even wrap our heads around it. Right. <laughs> um, you know, it was like there was this stated goal of gen ed, and then it was like none of the professors actually did that. And right. it sounds like they even really were teaching the opposite of what the viewpoint was supposed to be mm-hmm. or what the message was supposed to be. Well, it kind of reminded me when I was reading about it and uh, trying to do some research on it about Common Core issue with current education. Yeah. Because I don't understand Common Core very well. I know that, um, you know, my sister is a, is a teacher and she did a pretty good job of explaining it as sort of this guiding principle. Uh-huh. But it is, it's a very philosophical sort of approach to something that makes it difficult to really state this is exactly how this is to be applied. Like it's hard to pin it. It's hard to, to put it into practice, it sounds like. It seems that way. I could be wrong about Common Core because I don't know a whole lot about it, but Gen Ed sort of seemed to have the same sort of flavor. It's like, okay, you have a, an overriding principle here, but how, what does that look like on the ground? Yeah, and I, and I think that the people who were teaching it at the time, you know, they didn't really subscribe to this viewpoint. And so when they were tasked with teaching it, they were kind of like, well, we're going to do what we think is right. Right. And, you know, and you when we talk about Kaczynski's manifesto next episode, I think that you can see a whole lot of parallels between what he was learning in gen ed, you know, some of the philosophers that he was reading and his later viewpoint about you know, technology is being being basically evil and, and this idea that technology was no longer serving people, but rather people were serving technology. And and you know, this this belief that it was taking away people's ability to make decisions in their own lives. And he saw that as being really one of the worst things that 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 was going to destroy us as a race. Well I cannot wait to dive into his manifesto for the next episode for sure. Yeah, you know, and, and it's it's very interesting, and I, I know we're going to talk more about it, but when his manifesto was published, a lot of people actually identified with his beliefs. And, you know, I, I think that the the core beliefs that were taught in Jed Ed and what, what he kind of internalized, there are a lot of people that have that belief that te- that there are lots of bad things about technology, about rapid progression of technology. And so there were a lot of people that kind of applauded that piece of it, 
But then, of course, when it got into the way that we remedy this is by destroying other people, he lost some people there. Yeah. To say the least. Sure. Oh, you're you're always going to lose some people there, I would I would think. I would hope so, right? Right. So anyway, so that that was kind of the second area that for me reading through um, you know, articles about Kaczynski and about his history and, and things that other um that evaluators have have said about him, it seemed like this curriculum really did or or may have contributed to his later belief system. Right. So, and I know, I think you had some thoughts about Gen Ed as well. Well, basically what what sort of got me on this topic was an article that you had pointed out earlier uh, by Alston Chase, uh, who wrote for The Atlantic. He wrote an article back in 2000 that I thought was fascinating, where he sort of traces the whole sort of college experience for Kaczynski and how it, he believes sort of molded him into the Unabomber later on. So his observations, having been at Harvard um, at roughly the same time as mm-hmm. Kaczynski, and ironically spent some, or interestingly, spent some time in the Montana wilderness as well later on, isolated. Yeah, there were some parallels. So the, the article is called um, Harvard and the Unabomber. I think it was actually a book. And then he um, wrote an article about his book for The Atlantic. And we'll put a link to the article online. It's long, but it, it is very interesting because there were parallels in their lives. No question. Yeah. Parallels in their lives. And you can read about a very logical sort of path that he believes that Kaczynski took. I mean, we've all had experiences in college. I think I was really affected by college. I'm going to go into that a little bit here. And I think that Kaczynski's time at Harvard, as described by Chase, was actually very interesting, particularly because of this sort of curriculum, this gen ed sort of orientation that they had taken. But what's interesting is that Chase actually also struck up a correspondence with Kaczynski. Their paths didn't cross too much while they were at Harvard, although they were on sort of parallel paths. Mm -hmm. So we decided to do this subject in two parts, mostly because of the amount of information we wanted to cover that deals with this topic and the evolution of Ted Kaczynski as he became the Unabomber. First off, let's start out by saying generally we shy away from discussing topics relevant to this, as you talked about in the beginning, um, because it's relevant to the Federal Bureau of Prisons, of which Kaczynski is currently a federal inmate. So full disclosure, again, neither one of us has ever worked or met Kaczynski. No. He's housed in what we call the ADX, or otherwise known as the ADMAX, which is the ultra-high security prison roughly two and a half hours south of Denver and two and a half hours south of us. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So his current incarceration is a whole different topic, and it's not at all what we wanted to talk about. What we really wanted to sort of focus on was how his time at Harvard and the political philosophical setting there sort of launched Kaczynski into later becoming the Unabomber. So I think it's easy to sort of write off Kaczynski as mentally ill, which was something that he himself was afraid of when his defense team tried to argue this after his arrest, which is something we'll get into in the next episode. But for now, tracing the psychological experiments at Harvard at the time, run by a psychologist named Henry A. Murray, who was also loosely associated with things like the CIA and the MK Ultra experiments, which as you and I discussed, really needs to be its own episode. Oh, we have to do one definitely on MK Ultra. Sure. And to be fair, the link between Dr. Henry Murray and MK Ultra is kind of murky. We haven't really established that yet, but he was definitely a part of 
OSS, which was the precursor, as you stated, to the CIA. Right. And and really, the theory is that some of these studies that he was doing at Harvard were part of the MKUltra studies. But like you said, there's no conclusive evidence of that. Right. So we really need to begin this conversation about Kaczynski by looking into his early years first and the influences of his guiding philosophy, starting most notably at Harvard, where there was something called a gen ed movement going on. That was sort of a, an effect of overall, this overall sort of postmodern thrust that was taking over higher education at the time, I would argue, and continues to be a very strong, sometimes too strong influence on academia even today. I found the article by Alston Chase in 2000 and published in The Atlantic to be very interesting as it outlined Kaczynski's early years, including the influences that he was subjected to there. So Chase talks about the intellectual movement at Harvard as, at the time as they wrestled with the Gen X curriculum, which was supposed to help instill Western values and thought into its students. This caused a rift of sorts between humanists who were appalled at the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of the Second World War and the technological advancements that made this kind of destruction possible and ushered us into the atomic age. On the other side of the debate were the positivists, who were still clinging to a modernist view and who also, for the most part, believed that technology and science would actually be our savior, not our demise, and that this kind of progress would bring us closer to some sort of meaning and truth in life. So very different viewpoints. Yes. Well, yeah. this is, this is, these viewpoints have been battling for quite some time. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, so just a little tidbit about me. I studied social science at CU Denver for my master's degree, and we focused a great deal on social theory and philosophy. So I do love this stuff. Um, that doesn't mean, however, I claim to be good at it or explaining it. So just an FYI to our listeners, don't quote my explanations of modernism or positivism or postmodernism or anything like that as authoritative. I'll be the first to admit that it's been a long time since I've looked into a lot of this stuff. So just wanted to put that out there. So, But I'm going to try to explain and break down Chase's explanation as best as I can. So another way to look at what was happening at Harvard at the time is sort of a philosophical battle between what are generally referred to as modernists versus what we refer to as postmodernists. A very simplistic explanation will be to think about how we view the pursuit of truth. Modernists believe that there is a singular truth somewhere out there, but that it's just that we haven't perfected the method for discovering that truth yet. Postmodernists, on the other hand, often argue that the idea of truth is relative in nature and contextually based. In other words, truth can be different for everyone depending on all manner of situational differences and contexts. Ergo, absolute truth really does not exist. Today in academia, I've heard a number of theorists, including some that I respect a great deal, such as Ken Wilber, argue that the postmodern turn has sort of stayed, outstayed its welcome in academia. If we put this into a spiral dynamics context, which is something that I like to talk about quite a bit, um, uh, developmental consciousness portrayed in spiral dynamics, this kind of thinking would be represented as green thinking or the attempt to include multiple viewpoints. One example of this guiding education philosophy would be multiculturalism, where suddenly the Western cultural approach is not held in such high esteem, but is questioned by a number of other cultural ph philosophies, if that makes sense. Yeah, so this is something positive that's come out of well, this. Well, it's definitely meant to be positive. It's definitely seeking to be more inclusive. Okay. Okay. So, so far, so good, right? Except that like 
other forms of consciousness, there is a dark side to this kind of thinking. Green consciousness, while highly evolved, runs the risk of being hijacked, so to speak, by lower forms of consciousness masquerading as green, all because green thinkers want to be so damn inclusive and willing to accept all points of view. So then we see, we have these examples of how far this can be taken with extreme forms of political correctness, the policing of free speech, and ideas. In other words, while postmodernness has given us things like civil rights and feminism, all positive and powerful movements philosophically, it has also given us some controversial things as well. So keeping up with the new politically correct language of the movement is a favorite topic of ridicule for many conservatives who feel that others' feelings shouldn't be able to control another's rights. Yeah, I feel like this is pretty relevant stuff to what's going on in our current climate. Current academia. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this this has always been sort of a battle, right? So enter someone like Kaczynski. Alston Chase in his article talks a lot about how this movement at Harvard at the time isolated Kaczynski. As a modernist, philosophically rooted in mathematics, Chase argues that Kaczynski was convinced that the truth about life was out there and that advanced mathematics could prove it. Chase talks about how those who take this kind of modernist stance at the university are often isolated and can feel attacked, thereby retreating into their own philosophical hole, so to speak. So let me illustrate this dichotomy in a story about myself. You see, what's funny is that I felt this way in college, and I could relate to Chase's characterization of Kaczynski here. Not because I'm a genius in any sense of the word, so not in that way. But in this way that I often felt like a modernist at heart, rooted in this sort of very westernized view of reason, logic, and my view of the world. It wasn't until I got to Naropa later to finish my degree that I was exposed to more postmodern thinking especially in the form of the experimental writers of the 50s, such as the beat poets. You know, and that's interesting because I, I would say the same about my education, that it wasn't really until um, I was in graduate school that I got more exposed or had a, a better kind of understanding of that postmodern view. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, uh, me as well, even though it was definitely going on in college. So, you know, even in high school, so I'll give you an example, grunge was the rage. Oh, I totally remember that. Yeah, sure. So you see, grunge was distinctly postmodern in nature. It was very angry, it was very dirty, it was politically motivated, you know, and the style was too. Looking grungy meant kind of looking sloppy. Yeah. You had a carefree sort of attitude to go with an eclectic assortment of clothing. And it very rarely did it match. I loved that time. Can I just say I got to throw out my Aquanet (laughs) and not do my hair. It was wonderful. Okay, so that style (laughs) sort of represented a very postmodern view. Mm -hmm. Okay, and it was like, hey, we're going to incorporate all these sort of different viewpoints and look at them all together. We're going to give them all equal weight. Okay, so Ken Wilber uses the example of the classic look of Armani, so very clean lines, right? Mm-hmm. Versus the clashing and eccentric sort of whimsy of Versace. They're very different design aesthetics rooted in different views of the world. So Armani would be very modern, uh-huh. whereas Versace would be very postmodern. Oh, I like that example. Okay. Yeah, I did too. I thought it was brilliant yeah, that's when, cool. when Wilbur came up with it. So, okay, well, I was quite the opposite. I wore a lot of flat black. I was desperately holding on to the very clean electronic sound of Depeche Mode when I started my first year of college. So, and that was in uh, 1994. 
when grunge was, you know, everybody oh. was wearing flannel, everybody was wearing Pearl Jam t-shirts. Jankos. Yeah. yeah I, rem- I remember Airwalk shoes. Sure. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, was wearing, I was wearing a lot of black, just flat black. <laughs> um, the precise and very clean sound of bands like New Order or the Pet Shop Boys were falling out of favor for much angrier and much more acoustic sound of the grunge 90s. So quite frankly, I felt like an Englishman in New York in college. Oh. I was really out there. Uh, out of place when I got to Naropa because so much of my education was rooted in very Western ideals of knowledge and very modern in its approach, while postmodernism had taken full hold, especially at places like Naropa. Oh, yeah, especially at Naropa. So this was isolating. I felt like I was out of place in college, you know, just philosophically. I could see Kaczynski suffering from a much more intense case of this with his exceptional intelligence. He was always out of place, and his outlook was tested by the changes that were occurring at Harvard at the time. Enter somebody like Professor Henry Murray, the psychologist who ran a number of what we would consider to be very unethical studies as a researcher at Harvard at this time. So let me just stop you there, because I want to talk and kind of explain what the experiments actually were. Sure. So there were actually 22 students who participated in the study, and each of the students were given a code name um, so that they couldn't be identified. And what's interesting is that Kaczynski's code name has come out, um, you know, just through the publicity of the media and people kind of looking into his background. And because of that, now they will not release um, a lot of the information regarding his participation in the study. Right, because they know who we're going to know who he is. Right. By his so, code name. you know, that's kind of like convenient and that now we don't really know all of the extent of what happened. But anyway, kind of the overview, what we do know about the experiment. So each of the participants were first asked to write an essay on their personal worldview and philosophy. So after they did this, they then went and they were placed in front of a one-way mirror. They had a very bright light shown on their faces. So they were, I mean, nearly blind. They couldn't see really much except for this light. And then they hooked their, their heads up to electrodes. Then a panel of law students who were part of the experiment um, would come in. They sat behind the bright light. So the subject really couldn't see who they were talking to. And then the law students kind of started out being very cordial um, and then over time became more aggressive and they, their job was to systematically dismantle and discredit everything the participants wrote about their worldview and, and life philosophy. So really the aim of this was to place the subjects under extreme stress. And to make matters worse, each of these sessions were recorded and then the subjects were later required to watch these recordings. Um, further humiliating them. And, you know, Murray wanted to assess interrogation techniques that were commonly being used by law enforcement and security agents at that time. And one of the things that was pointed out is that these procedures, these interrogation procedures that he was studying, they were designed to psychologically break the person being interrogated so that they would be basically useless at the end of the interrogation. You know, but the the subjects in these experiments, they weren't trained spies. They were just young college students with no law enforcement experience, no experience in how, how to kind of psychologically withstand an interrogation. And when we think about Kaczynski, he was only 17 years old. He was only 17 years old when he began pers- participating in these experiments. 
So, you know, a lot of people have pointed to his participation in these as being potentially a contributing factor to, um, you know, his his later behavior and crimes. I completely agree. I was putting myself in that position or somebody like that, you know, that I know that's in college, like my nephew or your nephew. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, being subjected to something like that. And it, it sort of blows my mind. You yeah, know. I mean, something like this would never happen now. You know, we we talked about in the Stanford Prison Experiment right. episode how we have, you know, um, research boards and, you know, all research studies are examined for ethics and to make sure that they don't harm the subjects. Um, but that didn't really exist at that time that, that Murray was doing these studies. Right. And so to be hit at such a vulnerable time, because when you go off to college... You know, you, you sort of leave uh, sort of a big fish in a small pond as a senior in your high school or whatever. And then suddenly you're thrust into this environment where you are basically dealing with a lot of other kids who are also big fish in small ponds. And now everybody's a little fish in a huge pond. Right. Yeah. Right. And so you're automatically very, very insecure. You're trying to sort of formulate a worldview. You're being bombarded with all these different viewpoints all this different, all, you know, all this information. And now to be subjected to, they ask you to say, okay, well, shape your philosophy. And now we're going to destroy it in front of you. Yeah. And humiliate you. You know, in the article about Kaczynski, Chase talks about this as the second part of this sort of confluence that led to Kaczynski being shaped into the Unabomber. The funny thing about this experiment is that being attacked intellectually like this as Kaczynski was during the Murray experiments, can break someone down psychologically, just like you said. Mm-hmm. Right? This is why teaching is such an art form. A wrongly phrased critique or thoughtless word can destroy a student's ambition and set them up for a lifetime of complexes. On the other hand, there needs to be a balance in order to help push them forward when they aren't living up to their potential. Right, and you also don't want to have somebody who's like so fragile that they can't take criticism ever. Exactly. Yeah, so it's a it is a, a balancing act. Exactly, and that's that's exactly what I have written here. Is like this can be a balancing act <laughs> for Kaczynski and the Murray experiments. It seems as if the experience of being attacked and broken down drove him further into his philosophical and later his literal isolation. The attacks from the Murphy experiments, however, seemed to solidify Kaczynski's thinking. It made him work harder at cutting away the fat, recognizing logical flaws in his thinking and honing his ideas into a much finer point. So a quote from the movie Fight Club goes, When he first came to us, he was a wad of cookie dough. After a week, he was carved out of wood. And it sort of seems like this is what happened to Kaczynski. He was really forced to grind down his raw thinking into something very polished. And like a proud mother after that, he sort of clung to this ideology like a newborn as if something, you know, it was something he himself had created and needed to defend. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, the Murray experiment kind of reminds me of the so-called Socratic method, which is still used in law schools today, whereby professors are deliberately hard on students and attempt to push them by often attacking their line of thinking in front of the rest of the class. Um, What makes this unnerving for students is that you never know who the professor is going to call on which gives it a level of uncertainty oh yeah that that's a terrible feeling yeah (laughs) so uh scott tarot a writer you know um wrote a book called one l that i read many years ago when i was contemplating going to law school and uh, sort of recounts his experience as a one l 
or a first-year student at Harvard Law School and talks a bit about this method of teaching. So here's a funny tidbit that I bet you didn't know, Dr. McCono. Oh, okay. Let's hear it. Yeah. Whenever the students think a professor has been too hard on one of the students during this method, they hiss. It's sort of an old tradition in law school that empowers the students to give the professor some good-natured feedback when they feel like the professor's being too hard on a student by attacking the logic of their answer. Oh my, I I can just imagine my students listening to this episode. (laughs) I have a feeling I'm going to be hearing some hissing in class. Yeah, I'm surprised that that, that's never really taken uh, off in graduate school because they don't really use this sort of approach, this Socratic method, which is, again, deliberately meant to challenge them. No, I don't remember. I mean, I think that we, thinking back on my graduate education, We did have a couple of professors who were definitely more challenging. And it's interesting because they tended to be the professors who had gone to law school, now that Uh. you mention it. Um, And I remember that there were, like, it caused a lot of controversy because I was in graduate school for psychology, right? Right. And so there's this belief that psychologists are very nice and, and accommodating and that they don't push and... And really, that's not at all what we do. I mean, our, our job is to help people change, and change is uncomfortable. And so when our professors were, were kind of challenging us to change, I remember there being quite a bit of pushback um, at certain times. Yeah. And, and it was uncomfortable as a student, mm-hmm. but looking back on it, like those are the professors that I appreciate the most. Yeah, it's interesting because sometimes, again, there's that fine line between really trying to challenge somebody to think critically and to push them into what you know is their potential without degrading them, without, um, you know, setting them up for failure or making them so uncomfortable that they sort of throw their hands up and say, you know what, screw this, I'm out. Right. I mean, there's there's a limit. And I think... You know, it's also different when you feel like somebody is doing it to really better you um, versus when somebody's doing it with the, with the intention of humiliation. Right. And so, you know, when we look at the Murray experiments, there was no greater purpose for humiliating these students. Right. I mean, he really just wanted to see what would happen to people and their, their psychological functioning under this extreme kind of stress. Yeah, so it, it sort of... It sort of makes it seem as if Kaczynski came out very hardened, at least philosophically and intellectually. It, it certainly does. Very rigid. Yeah. And I mean, when you look at the parallels in the manifesto um, compared to what was going on at Harvard at the time, I mean, you, you can't deny that there was some impact, that there was some influence there. Right. The The whole philosophical sort of back and forth between these different viewpoints, I think, is really interesting. And it's sort of... It's really kind of difficult to nail down what was going on intellectually there at the time, you know, with this whole idea of positivism and Kaczynski's sort of very nihilistic view of where science and technology was taking us, especially with the bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, which really shocked the world at the time yeah, because nobody had ever seen that, right? anything like that. But at the same time, you know, he had a very sort of scientific, very analytical view of the world and that advanced mathematics would somehow yield the ultimate truths about nature. Right. And so it's sort of like, but this is this type of thinking is what also gives us this type of technology. 
you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it really is very kind of convoluted, and there's certainly some contradictions in there. It seems that way, huh? Yeah, from, from us you know, outsiders looking in, I'm sure Kaczynski would argue that that's not the case. He'd probably argue that very well, would he be my He probably guess. would, you know, but, but I mean, I just, again, I feel like you can't deny that these things influenced him. But at the same time, there were 21 other students that participated in the Murray experiments that were going through the gen ed curriculum at the same time as Kaczynski. And as far as I know, none of the 21 other people um, ended up going on to, you know, kill several people and injure many, many more. Right. Um, So there's got to be there's got to be something else there. This this isn't the whole story. Um, I think that that one of the things that is hard to account for is just kind of those internal personality characteristics. And that's certainly something that we're going to talk about more in our next episode. Yeah, but so right now it's just enough to say that we have at least some semblance of a philosophical basis for his thinking. Would yes. you say? Yeah, and I think that it does help us to kind of understand um, where he went later on with his crimes. Right. Yeah. I, I really appreciated that article by Alston Chase. Oh, I think it was great. That, yeah, that shed a lot of light on what Kaczynski was exposed to back at Harvard. Yes, it was it was really interesting. So um so that's a good segue into um kind of us wrapping things up. I wanted to let you know that we are gonna post a link to that article on the discussion page on our website at psychologyafterdark.com. We're also going to post one of the psychological studies or one of the psychological evaluations that was done on Kaczynski to assess his competency to stand trial. Um, the Court of Appeals in the Ninth Circuit actually ruled that the report should be made public so that people could have a better understanding of Kaczynski. And so it's a very long report. It's very long. Even for you, somebody like you. It was like long you. even for me. And I write very long reports. It was way longer than any report I've ever written. But it was so fascinating to read. So we're going to post a link to that as well. So, um, and if you guys have thoughts about um, the articles, about the topics, please feel free to leave your comments. You can also email us from our website and you can find us on Facebook at Psychology After Dark. And um, yeah, just so thank you guys so much for joining us. Um, we've been getting a lot more feedback, emails um, from our listeners. So thank you guys for that. We really appreciate it. And as always, if you're enjoying our podcast, please give us a five-star rating and let your friends know about us. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with part two about the Unabomber. I can't wait. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, guys. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. This episode was written, hosted, and produced by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskis, both provided by Gemendo.